Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. When I was a kid, I was such a mama's boy. I just worshipped my mom and always wanted to be near her. And on the occasions that I couldn't be, well, it just made me really sad. I remember my preschool was right next door to the building that my mother's office was in. And on the playground, I would often stand over at the fence, hoping my mom would see me from her window and come over and get me. And then would come nap time, during which the soft rock hits of the day were lightly piped through speakers in the classroom as I lay on the floor wishing I could be with my mom. I still have a visceral reaction whenever I hear the song Broken Wings by Mr. Mister. Gated reverb was the soundtrack of my separation fears. I think because of this, I held on to a prejudice towards 80s music for many years. I do recognize that this was probably unfair, especially to the many artists that stylistically share nothing with the adult contemporary tunes being forced upon my psyche during nap time. But to be fair, the records from this decade that would eventually mean a great deal to me just weren't on my radar yet. I should also say that my listening habits at this time were very much influenced by my mom's. She loved the Beatles, and because they were her favorite band, well, that meant they were my favorite too. So while most kids my age were probably watching MTV and listening to Top 40 Radio, I was listening to my mom's 45s on my Fisher-Price record player. But as I got older, I started getting into more contemporary styles of music, which would eventually lead me to one of the great loves of my life, 90s indie rock. And it was during this love and embrace of indie rock that I began looking to the past and exploring the influences of my favorite bands, many of which were from the decade that I had for too long wrongly dismissed. Soon enough, I would learn of the importance of the 80s and the large role it played in the development of underground music, birthing numerous movements that had a profound influence on much of the music I loved. And it was during my exploration of the various music scenes of this decade that I happened upon the music of the Paisley Underground. Combining 60s psychedelia with a DIY spirit of punk, the bands of this scene created a sound to which I felt an instant connection. I wondered if this had been the sounds transmitted through speakers in a dark preschool classroom, would I have spent so many years denying myself the best that the 80s had to offer? It's hard to say, really. But what I do know is that a lot of really great records emerged from this scene. And my particular favorite, which was actually released the year I was born, is Rain Parade's 1983 debut album, Emergency Third Rail Power Trip. I can remember first reading about this record before actually hearing it, and learning about its significance to both the Paisley Underground scene and psychedelic music. So I felt like it was something I probably should hear. And with that, I put on Emergency Third Rail Power Trip, and I listened. This is the story of that record. Uh, my name is Matt Peachy. I am one of the principal songwriters and guitarists for Rain Parade.
Matt Pucci would spend the earliest years of his life in various cities on the East Coast, eventually moving with his family just south of Chicago. Music would soon become an important part of his life, and it is through his older siblings as well as witnessing one of the most significant moments in pop culture, that Pucci would begin his interest in music. My older brothers had the basic 60s stuff. So I, I remember the Beatles being on TV, and I remember my younger brothers and I like getting up early and running downstairs to the kitchen and like grabbing pots and pans and pretending we were the Beatles, much to my parents' chagrin, I'm sure, because we woke them up. But um, So yeah, that, that was a... It's hard for people who weren't alive, but when Kennedy got shot, I was in kindergarten. And I mean, the 50s ended and the 60s began on that day. And then obviously, uh, the Beatles were just this balm for a, for a deeply wounded country. And uh, they were just, you know, the timing was amazing. Um, so, so I got into that, and then my brothers had all these records. And then my parents were pretty strict but for some reason they let my brothers take me to concerts so when i was 14 i went to see the birds and i had a psychedelic experience and i've never been the same <laughs> never that literally changed my life to see the clarence white roger mcginn birds do the 15 minute version of eight miles high and it was just i mean i, I wow <laughs> blew my mind. So um, that really planted a seed. After graduating from high school, Pucci moves to Minnesota to attend Carleton College. And it is there that he meets his future bandmate, David Roback. David, who is from Los Angeles, and I met at a small liberal arts college in Minnesota in 1975. Uh, And he and I became really good friends because we Basically, both of our mutual original roommates had complained to the management of the school that um, they did not share our lifestyle views and they wanted new roommates. So, <laughs> so those two guys, who were both really nice guys, um, they ended up as roommates. And then David and I ended up as roommates and we became fast friends and bonded over our love of 60s music and of surrealistic art and film and all sorts of stuff. I don't know why he decided to go to the middle of nowhere. Um, and, you know, this is an L.A. kid, mm-hmm. you know, sun, sunshine, cars, and all that stuff. And I don't think David lasted more than two years at that school. Yeah. Uh, and then he took off to warmer climes. It is while studying abroad that Pucci begins to experiment with songwriting. When I was 20, which is like 1978, I went to France for school. It was probably my last successful scholastic endeavor but I started tinkering then with the idea that maybe I could write a song. Um, David Roback and I tried to write a song. I wish we recorded it. We had some song about got to get out of Berlin, and I can't remember it, but that was the first time I tried. And then um, about 78, uh, when I, I came back, I, I at least tried, and then none of that stuff was any good when I was, I was in a band before I moved to L.A., kind of learning how to be a musician, First good song I wrote, I think, is What She's Done to Your Mind. Eventually, Pucci would leave the Midwest and relocate to Southern California. 
the beginning of 1981, in April of 1981, I moved from Minneapolis to Los Angeles with the exclusive purpose of creating a band with David Roback. Uh, we had no name, but we knew what we wanted to do. We had some idea of where we were headed, but not a ton. We were going to write original music, and we were very excited by the music of the 60s, and we're kind of, although our original inspiration in music was through the, the New York scene of 1975, right? What they call punk, although I think that's a really bad word for what happened then in New York. I mean, punk is more what happened in London afterwards, but I get to LA uh, and David and I are up above his parents' garage and we talked and he said, hey, my brother is a good musician. And that's Stephen Roback. And then he, man, within the first month, if not weeks, moved from Berkeley. He was going to school at Berkeley. And uh, he came down, and uh, what I didn't know at that time, you know, I, this was supposed to be a band with me and David, and then here comes Steven, and uh, we realized, wow, this guy's every bit this songwriter. He's probably even better than the two of us in writing songs. So that was very exciting to have three songwriters, which can't last. It just, it just can't. And that's that's how it got going. We we were uh, in L.A. in say you know, spring of '81. We spent the next year learning how to write music and, you know, getting a sound because we all felt that, you know, sonic textures were extremely important and we wanted to create something that wasn't just kind of run of the mill, but was kind of a more in-depth world of its own that, well, we wanted to use a lot of stuff. It wasn't just going to be two guitar spaces and drums. Along with keyboardist Will Glenn, Pucci and the Robacks form Rain Parade. And it is during this time in which the band is starting up that the scene that would eventually be known as the Paisley Underground begins to emerge in Los Angeles, featuring notable acts such as the Dream Syndicate, Green on Red, The Three O'Clock, and perhaps the scene's most successful act, The Bangles. The bands of the Paisley Underground, though each uniquely their own, still shared similar aesthetics. There's a grain of truth in it for sure there's a bunch of people who showed up kind of at the same time who were all about the same age uh, who were too young to be in punk bands from the original wave uh, who might have had access to their older brothers and sisters record collections from the 60s there are uh, legitimate connections well, we didn't really know what was going on at all. I mean, from April of 81 until May of 82, when we played our first show, that's all we did. We were holed up writing. We met people. Uh, well, of course, we knew um, Stephen and, and the Robacks uh, knew the Hoffs. They were neighbors. Sue lived down the street. So Sue was one of the first people I met. And uh, her brother, John. Uh, and Jesse, I knew those guys. Uh, they were among the first people I met. And then uh, Will Glenn, who ended up in Rain Parade, was uh, Sue's brother, John's roommate at Yale. So that's how we knew those guys. And I had seen the first Bangles show. As a matter of fact, <laughs> seeing they weren't even called the Bangles. They were, they were called the Colors. And I went there with David and we saw this band. And we were just floored. I mean, I was like, these guys are going to be gigantic. And then when we put out our, our single, it got play around it. Other people heard about us. The only band I knew was the Bangles. And then I, what was pure kismet um, when we played our first show in 82 is was with Green on Red. 
I remember that night, you know, I remember distinctly sitting in the, well, <laughs> the green room, if you want to call it that, which is probably some shitty closet. Um, and then Will comes running in. He's like, you got to come see these guys. And then we all kind of went up there and saw Green Eye Red sound checking, And we were just like, holy shit. I mean, they were amazing. It wasn't anything that I'd seen. You know, L.A. was very, very, like, punk. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't, I wasn't there, but I am told that, you know, in the 70s, there was a sweetness and innocence to Los Angeles. And, you know, you really, yeah, there was a lot of sexual freedom and people, you know, there's glam and, you know, people experimenting with sexuality and that kind of stuff. And it, But it was pretty innocent. It doesn't have the same cynicism as now. Um, and then something happened to punk. I don't know what, but by the time the eighties started, something had happened to punk in LA where it became this sort of like jock, macho frat boy kind of thing, stomping and very male and female exclusionary, if you will. Um, that was kind of gross. So, uh, I mean, I liked X, and I, and I liked the Circle Jerks, Keith Morris, is fabulous. Um, but the rest of it was just, just, I mean, not that there weren't talented people doing cool stuff, and I'm not going to put down anybody's scene, but it just felt kind of boring. And then for us to show up, and then we, we played, like, with acoustic guitars and we do waltzes, and and people were like, what the fuck? We, we thought that actually was kind of punk when everybody else is like sweating screaming and we weren't we you know we obviously love the birds and what i love the birds about them is they would you know they'd be up there and they would say fucking words to the audience and uh it was just like wow they were just the coolest thing ever so we wanted to get a little bit of that after recording and releasing their first single which includes the tracks what she's done to your mind and kaleidoscope the band would begin work on their debut full-length album. Like they had with their first single, the band opts to work once again with engineer Ethan James, best known for his work on the Minutemen's seminal album, Double Nickels on the Dime. James was also at one time a member of the proto-heavy metal band Blue Cheer. The place we recorded first, which is Radio Tokyo, was an eight-track recording studio run by Ethan James. Uh, That was a little house in Venice. And... uh, Here's a little aside that I find hilarious. The woman I ended up marrying, (laughs) who I didn't meet until 1985, lived in that exact house before it was Radio Tokyo. Uh, The song Kaleidoscope and the song Saturday's Asylum that are on um, Emergency Third Rail Power Trip were both recorded at that studio. Mm -hmm. The other eight tracks were recorded to Contour. I do know there was a guy named Amrit who ran it, and it was, I think, in Culver City, somewhere fairly close to Radio Tokyo. Contour was a 16-track studio. Uh, I guess Amrit was a friend of Ethan's, because Ethan came with us and did, still did the engineering for Emergency Third Rail Power Trip. What was kind of cool was that when we did the Radio Tokyo, we realized pretty quickly that we were good at it. And that we were probably better at it when we were live. I mean, I, we just, uh, we, we liked it. We felt comfortable there. It was kind of like, you know, I mean, I was a duck. I didn't know I could swim and we jumped in the water. It was like, hey, 
this is great. We can do this. And uh, so we didn't really have that much experience. We had done some four track stuff. We were very uh, prepared. We worked very hard, very long. And uh, we did allow for you know things to happen in the studio that were um, spontaneous, but the stuff was pretty well arranged. It is while working on the record that the band signs with the then Torrance, California-based label Enigma Records. It can't be understated how much um, David Robag was really instrumental in us getting to a record label. Rain Prey was kind of based on a, I mean, loosely based on the principle that he was the artistic director and I was the musical director. We never like actually said that. And of course, he made musical contributions, as did I make artistic contributions. But I, I will give this to him. I mean, I was coming out to L.A. I didn't have any connections. I didn't have anything. But he knew the Hoffs. And he knew people from L.A. He knew Adam Nimoy, who, yes, is Leonard Nimoy's son. And I'm not sure if Adam knew Bill Hine and Enigma. I'm not sure how David hooked up with Enigma. But he did. And Bill Hine came to see us. Super great guy, by the way. I mean, first guy I met in the music business who was a, a, a record label guy. And probably the most honest guy at that I ever met. It was all downhill from then. But he liked us. We were already in the middle of doing it before he actually said, I'll put it out. As the album was nearing its completion, the band would begin to experience some internal problems. Look, as I was saying before, three songwriters in a band is really difficult. And if you go back to when I moved out there, we thought it was just going to be me and David, right? And we didn't know if we could write songs. And then a big surprise, and it was a surprise, was that his brother, Stephen, was also this really, really talented songwriter. And you could make the argument that he's probably better than the two of us. I don't know. It doesn't matter whether that's true or not, but he was a very formidable songwriter. And as things progressed, because we'd been there for a while, uh, and our single could come out, but we were constantly working on music, Stephen and I hit it off. We were really writing a lot. And then David and I didn't really write that much anymore. And Stephen and David didn't really write that much anymore. And it became obvious by the time we recorded that song, Saturday's Asylum, David is barely on that song. He plays an acoustic guitar part. So I think what really broke the band and set it up for the future departure was that David came to us and he said, okay, my dad's going to loan me half the money for this record. And because he's going to do that, I insisted my name go first. And we were kind of outraged by that. Now, in fairness, ultimately, he did kind of produce it. He came up with a lot of cool stuff. And he's a very talented producer. And there's really nothing that wrong with it. I just thought it was really twisted of him to claim that he he was going to get money from his dad, but his brother's in the band, too. And it's like, wait a second. I, his dad was a great guy, really, really, really sweet, helpful guy, doctor and lawyer. Really super smart. But... um. That didn't sit well, and I think that probably opened the crack that eventually broke the whole thing apart. But in the end, they made a record.
Emergency Third Rail Power Trip opens with the track Talking in My Sleep. Much like the entire record, it's a song not beholding to the time period in which it was recorded, and sounds as if it could have easily come out ten or more years before or after its release. Featuring David Roback on lead vocals, Talking in My Sleep is a hypnotic number with dreamlike instrumental textures that interweave nicely around the steady rhythm section of bassist Stephen Roback and drummer Eddie Caldwell. guys are very underrated rhythm sections. Steven is a fantastic bass player, and Eddie Calva is a very, very good drummer who understood that his most important job was to keep time, leave space, and have a cool part. Very, very much like Ringo. Um, here's the thing. Some drummers play beats. Other drummers play songs, and that's what I loved about Eddie. My buddy Billy Talbot from Crazy Horse, who uh, you know, is a, an actual, real, bona fide rock star. Once told me they were playing with B.B. King, and B.B. just tossed off this little aside and said, if you prove him, you ain't grooving. I was like, okay, yup. <laughs> I think B.B. said it best. <laughs> if you prove him, you ain't grooving. I got this riff together, the whole thing, the entire riff, and then I had a verse. I know I'm talking in my sleep, sleeping in my dreams, dreaming on my feet. I had that, but that's it. That's all I had. And I go, well, David, man, let me finish this song. So he did. So he came up with more words um, in another section, and just like we had done with what she's done in your mind. Uh, and uh, the reason he ended up singing it, even though it was my song originally is that we sort of had this deal it's like okay either one of us is that talented of a musician that we could get out there and play lead and sing at the same time so uh okay so you're playing lead on what she's done your mind i'll sing it but okay, for this song you know i'll play the lead and then you sing it so that's what happened and he ended up singing it and uh that's that song
instrumental interplay prevalent on the previous track, the psychedelic and multi-layered This Can't Be Today features bass and guitars intricately playing off of one another, and colored with various percussive tones, as well as keyboardist Will Glenn's palette of interesting sounds. That was, you know, one of the first realizations. The thing about Lane Freight is we weren't really Lane Freight until Steven started playing bass. We originally had Willie playing bass and Steven playing keyboards because Steven is a very good piano player. Probably way better than Will was, uh, although Will was a very accomplished musician, a concert master, like violinist, just wicked. But, I mean, he turned out to be perfect. I mean, that, that was a coup. We could see how Rain Parade happened at that exact moment when it was like, wait a second, where have Willie play keyboards? And Will would do less flowery stuff, but he had a really good, weird view of what a what keyboards should do in a band like this. So we'd play pads that weren't super complicated, but he would use cool voicings and weird sounds and all that other shit. So anyway, so This Can't Be Today was a song that uh, Steven, he was just goofing around one day and he had this bass line. I'm like, dude, that is really weird and cool. What is that? And he's oh, this thing. And I loved it. And I'm like, that's cool, man. So he and I started playing. And then I kind of came up, up with my guitar part for that. Um, and then uh, I seem to recall me and Steven going for a walk on a beach in Santa Monica. And we came up with the words. And yeah. And then when we started playing with Eddie... I can't remember when David got involved. He recognized that it was really cool. And so I'm not 100% sure. I know we came up with the drum part for Eddie, but I can't remember whether that was me or David or both of us or Steven or Eddie or whatever, because we would write drum parts sometimes. So uh, then David came up with his fuzz part, and we wanted this part for Willie, and we're like, man, we, we, we like the song Baby, You're a Rich Man by the Beatles with that weird flute thing yet. I'm pretty sure that's Brian Jones, or at least I've heard that. Um, and we're like, we got to find that sound. So we literally spent some time looking for the sound, and we found a synthesizer that made it. We bought the damn thing. We bought a, a Chord Poly 6, because it could make that weird backwards whistle sound. And then uh, then we were off and running on that song. And I remember we recorded it in Vetus Monterey's garage. I just remember distinctly Looking at Vetus as Willie was playing that song, Willie was hilarious to watch because he would close his eyes and stick his tongue out. He looked like a little nymph. 
and Venus is there and his eyes are just bulging. He's like, can you believe what this motherfucker is playing? And I'm like, I just shook my head and I'm like, no. <laughs> and so that's how that song happened. Steve and I wrote that song starting with his bass part and then we wrote all the words and then I think David dived in helping to arrange it. See, the thing about Rain Parade that we did early on is we decided that we were going to um, have the songwriter get half the money for songwriting and the other half would go to the band so that there wouldn't be any of that jealousy. It was the only way to make it work with three songwriters, even though it blew up pretty quickly. Um, and Steven and I just split stuff and always have now because it's just too hard. If you don't worry about stuff like that, then you know you can move forward. the track I Look Around. A true highlight of emergency third rail power trip. The sonic space is filled with backwards guitars, lush vocal harmonies, and some really great rolling march-like drums. Uh, well, we absolutely wanted that military drum roll. It's funny because, uh, you know, when David left, we didn't really play that song anymore. And then, uh, like, shit, like, five, ten years ago, Eddie came back from Toronto to visit his brother in uh, Grass Valley, which is up, well, it's about two, three hours from here in between Sacramento and Tahoe. I went to his brother's house, and it was just me and Eddie playing. I started playing that song, and he started playing the drums. I'm like, yeah, that! Because it's like, it's been like 25 years. I've played that with like 10 other people, and it never freaking sounded right. And I'm like, that's it. That exactly there. So yeah, he had that. He's a very, I, I love that guy. He's a great guy. I don't know why the hell I kicked him out of the band. I was an asshole. Anyway, he was great. And I love that part. When I originally moved to Los Angeles, I lived above their parents' garage. But eventually we moved to a house owned by Sue Hoff's grandfather, uh, Rabbi Hoff's. Very cool guy. Um, very active in civil rights in the 60s. I think David moved out and I still live there. But anyway, he came down and he showed me the song. It was very straightforward. It had that very quarter note strum that like every song on Revolver has. Hey, that's cool. And I'm like, hey, dude, wait a second. And I get my guitar and I'm like, because I've been noodling around with something. I'm like, I think I got something for that. And David Roback was not a demonstrative guy, but I've never seen him that happy. He literally started jumping up and down when I played that. So he's like, yeah, that's it, man. And so we had the riff, and we're off and running. Stephen wasn't originally a bass player. And I, I was, and I helped him learn how to play. And not that he's, he needed help doing anything, but I did kind of get him going on bass, and we kind of helped develop this style together. That bass part is a direct steal from a band called Plastic Land from, from Milwaukee. It's a song called uh, 
color appreciation. Love those guys, a great band. Similar time, very psychedelic, trippy band. Yeah, they were more into the clothes thing, so man, they looked 60s, but they were cool, man. I think the bass player from Violent Femmes was in their band originally. They're a great band, great band out of Milwaukee called Plastic Man. Anyway, so they had a very 60s influenced bass part, and we stole it from them. Um, and, there, and then Eddie threw down the military thing, and then Hey, let's do the minor chord thing and David play some backwards guitar and get and he just spun away. So there you go. That's that one. introspective lyrics and dynamic shifts in tempo, the trippy One Hour Half Ago is a track that truly shines due to its smart and interesting arrangement. Beginning acoustic part has that little bit at the end where it slides down a half a step, kind of very severity, because we love severity the Floyd. That little intro thing, that's him. But then the what's the point? Who's looking back? All oh, these whatever. That's Steven's part. And then uh, there's a little bit maybe I came up with that, I don't remember. But it doesn't matter. Uh, and I don't remember whose idea it was to slow it down. I guess I could take credit for it, and no one would ever tell me that was wrong, but I'm not sure that's me. But it was my idea to do backwards guitar on there, and use a volume pedal, and we wanted to get that Yardbird Z kind of thing, and I think I did successfully get it there. 
that was one like talking my sleeping uh and this song kind of go together because that was like david on acoustic and me on electric and then a lot of weird changes the outro that is a david thing the outro that's a hit that's a production thing where he turns the band down and then the acoustic guitar gets louder the band kind of fades away uh that's something he did I, I was not there and when i came back and he had done it um, i was like well, pretty, well done that's fucking cool so Some songs are like verse, chorus, like what she's done your mind, very straightforward. And that's it. And that's cool. But with like Look at Mary and Hour and a Half Ago, you know, we're not just gonna have three sections. We're gonna have these little bits that come here and maybe there, but only a little bit of them. And that you know what I mean? The different things going on beyond your basic, you know, bridge, chorus, and verse thing. The wistful and lush Carolyn Song is a melancholic acoustic number backed by atmospheric flourishes of slide guitar and violin. David's big star uh, ripoff is that the word it's pretty much like kangaroo and holocaust mixed together but if you're going to steal something I mean you could do a lot worse than stealing from big star third so uh he had that really slow song and I know Carolyn and she's like an actual person and she was a girlfriend of his around that time but originally he called it, sorry, I didn't pay the phone bill. I thought that was amazing. I, I really wish you had kept that name, but he didn't. And so he came to that, it was pretty fully formed. We knew we wanted to do the thing like uh, long, long, long. It's kind of a lift of that. You know, the bit in long, long, long where it stops. And there's the organ and then there's Ringo's drums come in. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same damn thing, like exactly. But so what, right? And that slide part, I was like, okay, I'll do the big star slide thing. And I did. 
funny thing about that is, is like that slide sound is he, he ended up, he doesn't play any slide in Rain Parade, but he ended up liking that sound and he kind of took that slide sound and ran with it. And that's a lot of Mazzy is that stuff. Really cool, moody stuff that he, you could kind of see if you wanted to look back, to, you know, where does he get that Mazzy stuff from? And that's kind of, I think that song was his first try at that kind of sound. One of the great features of Carolyn's song is the way in which the slide guitar and violin are mixed. At times, it's hard to make out when one part ends and the other starts, as the two instruments just seem to effortlessly meld together. Well, that's probably a function of the way Will played the violins. Because when we, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong, I think we cut that shit. I, I, I can't be 100% sure about this, but I'm pretty sure we cut it with the guitars. And then Willie did the violins later. So he slid right in there. And so that, that melding is a function of his prowess as a violin player slash arranger. Appearing on their first single, but re-recorded for Emergency Third Rail Power Trip, the jangle pop gem, What She's Done to Your Mind, with its chiming 12-string and rich vocal harmonies, is a song that could easily pass as some deep cut from Mr. Tambourine Man to Younger Than Yesterday. It's concise and melodic, and just sort of a perfect pop song. And if you were wondering, yes, this is my favorite song on the record. back at my mom's and dad's house and I'm in the parking lot at Dominic's Groceries in uh, Madison, Illinois, and I'm sitting there going, how can I steal the Beatles' rain and not get caught? So I, I kind of started with the course to rain. And then it's like, no, that's, I can't do that. That's too much like rain. So they started tweaking them, and, you know. <laughs> and then, yeah, so I think I started substituting chords and changing the melody, and then that's what you get. I came back, and I'm like, David, check this out. You, know, you may say nothing had you, what you've done in your mind. He's like, wow, that's cool. And then, I mean, he knew what it was about. About him, he was, he saw Sue, and he, he was really, it kind of blew his mind, because Sue was his ex-girlfriend, and he wanted to be, I don't think this is an unkind way to put it. I mean, he wanted to be a successful musician, man. And here was this person with whom he had collaborated who seemed to be off and running before we were, and it bugged him. And he was upset. 
and so I'm like, whoa. And then I thought, you know, the birds always had kind of weird names for their songs, and it wasn't just, uh, you know, I love you, baby, or whatever. And I just like, what she's done to your mind? I'm like, that's weirdly cerebral. And I don't think I've heard anybody say anything like that before. So I went with it. And uh, he liked it, David. And he's like, hey, man, check this out. And he, a couple days later, he's like, she, she can let you down. I'm like, that's fucking amazing, dude. And then we started playing it. And he had the uh, tools come in. Started playing it. He comes up with this riff. I'm like, yeah, that. And it is kind of a weird riff, too. It's not that normal. So anyway, yeah, I thought it was a great riff he played and I wanted to cop that feel that the birds had. I mean, they're the same damn instruments, too. I mean, we <laughs> the birds sell the Beatles on TV, and then Crosby goes out and buys a Gretsch Tennessean, and McGinn buys a Ricky Marker 12-string, and that's exactly what me and David did. I mean, uh, he already had the 12-string, and I went to West LA Music looking for a guitar. Not necessarily that guitar, a guitar. And the dude's like, hey, man, check these out. These, like, pink fucking Floyd Rose heavy metal bullshit things. And I'm like, what about that one over there? And he goes, oh, that, that's only 200 bucks. I'm like, boom, I'm in. And then about a year later, I traded it in for a, the exact same guitar, but only a better version of it for another $200. And I still have that puppy today, and I use it fucking every day. I mean, well, anytime I play, I play that thing. It's still my main axe. As we near the end of the record, we get the track Look at Mary, containing all the hallmarks that made this band special. The song features hazy and dreamlike sonic textures, an interesting compositional structure, television-inspired guitar noodling, and the band's reliably steady rhythm section. Opening with music box-like piano and closing with the fading sounds of humming keyboards and maracas, from start to finish, Look at Mary takes its listeners on a full-on psychedelic journey. cool thing about that song is more than any other song that is a pastiche of everybody throwing ideas into a pot because that little dude that's steven on a guitar I, well no i mean he's he's not the one who plays it on the record but i think he came up with that first and then david ended up playing that on this washy faced out 12 string we really like that and i'm pretty sure look at mary she goes right now that's my those are my lyrics and uh oh god this is a tough one because it was so collaborative i can't be sure who did what 
there's some parts that are David's, some parts that are mine, some parts that are Stephen's. There's a bunch of different sections to that. That was David's idea. I, I remember that um, to have a three-four section, and then the idea that we would do an outro—I think that just happened in the studio. And that very, very, very last riff is me starting to play the, the riff from Eight Miles High. <laughs> I think I did play it, and we cut off the last two notes. So, so Saturday's Asylum is a track that once again features the band's proficiency in musical interweaving, as well as their ability to move a song in unexpected directions. Of the songs that would appear on Emergency Third Rail Power Trip, this track would be the last to be recorded and not originally intended for the album. i 
that was done at Radio Tokyo, and that was done for the Radio Tokyo compilation. But we decided at the last minute, I go, we're like, shit, it's a good song. Why should these guys get to use it? Why can't we put it on our album? So we did. Uh, it's a Steven song. That's a riff that, I mean, I play on the song, but it's his riff. I just learned it. I think I might have souped it up a little bit. Those words are. Now I get some writing credit for it, and I'm not sure why. <laughs> I think I helped him finish it. It's pretty much a Steven song. And uh, that weird sort of, as Dan Stewart used to call it, the Turkish fertility dance at the end. What do you call it? Or Egyptian fertility dance, or some shit like that. Um, yeah, that, that might have been me, but that was pretty much Steven's song. plays an acoustic 12 string but we were done we were basically done with the entire song and then he showed up and he laid down his part and that was it emergency third rail power trip ends with the ethereal and nostalgic Kaleidoscope. Originally appearing on the band's debut single, the song is a layered track embellished with droning sitars, atmospheric organ textures, and Gene Clark-inspired tambourine hits. It's Steven's song. He wrote the whole thing. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why we did this bit with sharing songwriting is because that way you didn't have to like argue about stuff. Because I mean, there's songs you say, you know, like uh, I'll say, like I think what she's done in your mind. Maybe Steven had thrown in a line that he doesn't get credit for, and then like on Kaleidoscope, our song really didn't sound anything like that when Steven presented it to us. David and I really helped change it and added a few chords here and there, but. So what? I mean, it's basically his song. And uh, those are great words. That was when I realized, like, holy shit, this guy is something special. I think David may have said it first. He's like, let's not do this normal. Let's try to make this different. So he came up with that, which is sort of a semi-inspired by uh, 
for what it's worth, if you will. But David plays it a lot fuzzier. And Danny Stewart goes, he was, man, that part is mentally ill, which was a compliment. <laughs> um, and I was like, wow, that's cool. Great. So I'll just play the clean rhythm. And, and Willie, we, we had a farfisa. We knew that we liked the drone of the farfisa. But, I mean, years before we ever even played anything, when we were in college, I had a friend uh, who had a sitar, and I really liked it, and she let me play it, and I kind of at least learned how to make a noise out of it. And when we got to Rain Parade, it's like, you know, damn it, we're putting a sitar somewhere. You know, I'm going to find a spot for it, and I'm going to goddamn do it. And... Uh, I'm like, this is the one. And Dave was like, yeah, yeah, cool. Let's do that. So we found a sitar and I, I played that and it just worked great for that song. That's an eight track too, not 16. You know, Ethan's uh was a really good engineer he, and he, he got it. And I think for him, he was just kind of amused because I believe Ethan was even in blue chair at one time. His real name is like Ralph Kellogg or something, but he did play in a later version of blue chair. So he understood, you know, that kind of music and, um, you know, it was kind of a hoot for him after probably doing enough punk bands for years to cure some people who wanted to, you know, try something a little bit more uh, interesting musically. Through his duties as artistic director of Rain Parade, David Robeck would create the album art using a vintage photograph of hot air balloons, as well as come up with the idea to name the record Emergency Third Rail Power Trip. That is a real thing. Um, that is from BART, uh, the Bay Area Rapid Transit subway system. And if you go to any BART station, any of the subway stations, there's a little yellow sign with a box next to it that says emergency third rail power trip. And that's an emergency shutoff to the electricity. I guess David said, he, he came to me one time and he said, dude, I was riding the BART and I saw this and I was stoned and I, I said, I got to write this down. I'm like, that's fucking fantastic. He goes, should we call the album that? Yeah, yeah, that's fucking great. Yes, that's, yes, absolutely. So uh, I remember loving it, but that was completely David's idea. And see, David was the artistic director of that band. And he really does deserve credit for that, for putting the band together. And uh, like, I mean, he was, I mean, I was a more accomplished musician than he was at that time. And so he didn't understand music as well as I did, but he he was an artist. He was always going to be, that guy was always going to be an artist. And that cover too is a picture that David found. He said he was going to colorize them. That's from like some, I think that's from Paris at the turn of the century. Um, so yeah, that's from like 1908 or 1910 from some balloon party in Paris. We worked on it together, but those are totally him. I mean, Mercy Third Rail Power Trip, that's his idea. And that picture is his idea. Enigma Records releases Emergency Third Rail Power Trip in the fall of 1983, and in the period following the album's release, the band would experience both frustrations with the local scene and the consequences of the internal conflicts that first became apparent during the recording process. Well, I mean, we were, you know, toiling away in obscurity, and we were working on this album, and our first, like, real buzz, you know, ego boost was from... Uh, from England. I mean, Los Angeles is a tough place. I mean, I, I uh, and the bands that LA tends to love of its own are almost never bands that go big. Not never, but I mean, they tend to love a 
particular kind of band. It wasn't until Love started coming back from England that I think things really got rolling. And it was the English who first recognized that we were up to something. Um, and they did so on our single and on our compilations that we were on. So by the time the album came out, they were primed for it. You know, they did like it. Um, and we went on tour. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, we departed ways with David after a, a fairly short tour. And then we moved on, and so did he. And the world got two bands of cool stuff. Following his departure, David Robeck would form the band Clay Allison with Dream Syndicate's Kendra Smith and eventually change their name to Opal. But Robeck would perhaps find his greatest commercial success with the band Mazzy Star, which would have a modern rock hit in 1994 with the single Fade Into You. Sadly, in February of 2020, David Robeck would pass away from metastatic cancer. Rain Parade would continue for a few more years following the release of their debut record, with drummer Eddie Caldwell leaving before their official disbandment in 1986. Bassist Stephen Robeck would form the band Viva Saturn, and keyboardist Will Glenn would play with his former Rain Parade bandmate David Robeck and both Opal and Massey Star before sadly passing away from cancer in 2001. Matt Pucci would work on a number of musical projects during the ensuing years, including an album with Tim Lee of the Windbreakers, and for a time, acting as lead guitarist for Neil Youngless' version of Crazy Horse. In 2012, Pucci, Stephen Roback, and guitarist John Thoman, who had originally joined the band in the period following David Roback's departure, would reform Rain Parade and have continued to make music together ever since. In the nearly 40 years since its original release, Emergency Third Rail Power Trip has aged exceptionally well and is highly regarded as an important document of both the Paisley underground scene and psychedelic music overall. And as for Pucci's feelings on the record, he's grateful to have had a part in creating something that's meaningful to so many people. Well, I'm kind of stunned that it is looked upon in such high regard. I mean, I kind of have to pinch myself sometimes when I read what other people say, but I I have learned through talking to people, and I don't think they're full of shit, that this is a very important record to a lot of people. And so, I mean, for us, or at least me personally, the idea that I could be for somebody else, like what television was for me, is just mind-blowing. I just, uh, 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 yeah, I, I just, I, I'm just so humbled and flattered that people think that what we did was important. And, uh, I mean, they've kind of convinced me <laughs> that it was. <laughs> Perhaps that's delusional, but, uh, you know, sure. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Matt Pucci for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream Emergency Third Rail Power Trip on the various streaming platforms, as well as buy it from the usual online retailers, Or, you could do it the way God intended, 
check out your local record store. See if you can find a copy that way. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.